And that can be found, our passage will be found on page 983 in your ESV Pew Bibles. We'll begin in verse 5. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we come before you now as your children. We acknowledge our utter sinfulness, oh, Lord. Lord, we are, we are ungodly. We are, oh, Lord, failures in so many respects. But with you, there is grace. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come to a throne of grace and that you wash us clean and you renew us. Oh, Lord, we look to you as your people, as your sheep. We, we are needy, and we need your help to live this life that you called us to live. We cannot do it without you. Oh, Father, now as we open up the pages of the Bible, we pray, as our confession said, that you would speak to us through your word. I pray for myself, oh, Father, as I, I am just a, 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 a vessel, O oh Lord, in which you use to open up the scripture to teach us and instruct us that you would give me grace, Father. Oh, Lord, help me and, and overshadow me and use me for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. I feel like every week I come to church, I see things that never cease to amaze me. A couple of weeks ago, Rachel and I were driving together and uh, a eight-point buck was galloping across the Taconic Parkway. And it was maybe about 50 feet in front of me. And I had to slam my brakes on along with a few other cars. And I'm looking at my rear view, of course, hoping nobody crashes rear ends me. But, you know, I don't want to hit the deer and for a variety of reasons. And, you know, of course, you know, when you go hunting, you don't see the eight-point buck. But when you're driving on the Taconic, you see the eight-point bucks. And then this morning we're driving here and, you know, you, you see all the expensive cars on the road on Sunday mornings. All the, all the wealthy people in Midwest Chester like to take their toys out for, on the weekend for a Sunday drive. And a Lamborghini is there on the side of the road and, and, and you see a guy just sitting there on a, on a tire that got totally burnt out and on the side. And you say, well, even the Lamborghini can't hold up these days. And then I get to the Four Corners here in Hartsdale and I think this was what really bugged me is, did you see the big, like, psychic store that was opened on the corner? Yeah. Psychic and tarot cards and crystal healing. And, and, and I'm like, you know, this, this, is, this is a sign of the times. You know, people are not going to church, but they're flocking to the, to the, to the witches and to the necromancers and to the psychics. This is a indicative of the sign of the times where people are, are more and more becoming demonic and, and seeking the dark spiritual side of things. And I was thinking, so sad, 
So sad that this place has such a a corner spot with with just such big advertising, and here we are tucked in Columbia Avenue. And then I'm driving up the street on Columbia Avenue, and I see a woman driving down the road all alone by herself in the car with all her windows closed and a mask on. We're two years, three years post this COVID, but you know what I've just come to realize? You see all these things. Life is full of all kinds of ups and downs, difficulties, weirdness. And I'm just wondering, like, when does it end? Like, you know, when do we just kind of see normal scene all just kind of, you know, and that won't happen to the new heavens, the new earth. As long as we're in this world, there's going to be pressures. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be people in sin and rebellion. There's going to be people with worry and fear. There's going to be people with all kinds of conflict. You're going to hear wars of rumors of war. But you know what? In the end of the day, we're God's people. And God has his grip on us. And with that said, we have a lot to be thankful for. We have a lot to be thankful for. Thanksgiving is this weekend, and it was no coincidence, right, that our psalm reading emphasized Thanksgiving or our, our reading is, is, is here today, emphasizes Thanksgiving, and our sermon will emphasize it. And, and you say, well, what do I got to be thankful about? Because certainly we all have problems in life. Some of us have physical problems, like Pastor Paul, who's been really struggling for quite some time, or some of us may have emotional or spiritual or mental problems that we fight through, right? But whatever your problems are, if you allow your problems to become front and center in your life, if you allow your fears and anxieties to become the center stage in your life, then it overshadows the goodness of God. And as I was preparing this sermon, I realized I'm so guilty of this myself. I allow my problems, I allow the negative things in my life to overshadow, to take center stage, and I focus on that and it obscures the good things in my life. How often do we do that? And the reason why we do that is because by nature, as sinners, our sinful nature is prone to complaining. It is prone to grumbling. It is prone to thanklessness. If you read in Romans chapter 1, it describes the reprobate and ungodly as those who do not give thanks to God. It is our nature. It is our nature to find fault. It is our nature to worry. It is our nature to be angry. It is our nature to be anxious. This is the sinful nature. But we don't have to live like that. God set us free. He gave us a new nature. The question is, do we tap into that? Today, our passage enlightens us to what God is doing in our life. It enlightens and illuminates what the power of the Spirit looks like in the Christian life. And if you are in Christ, who is the hope of glory, and that has been the central theme of Colossians, if you are in Christ, then you have a lot to be thankful for. If you are not in Christ, then you will leave here today and you'll be just as miserable as you did when you came in and you'll be just as angry as you were when you went in and you'll be like, oh, whoop-de-doo. May the Lord open our hearts today to really see what he is doing, and if we're not in Christ, we need to seek him with all our hearts. We need to repent. And so let's look at our, our passage today. It's really a transitional passage. Up to this point, what do I mean by transitional? Up to this point from chapter 1, verse 1, 
to this point has all been focused on Paul's introductory prayer and his salutation to the church. And so all we see in this is, is doxology and praise to God and, and, and a sense of uh, uh, encouraging the church and letting them know what he heard from Epaphras and what he knows is going on in the church. It's a, it's a sense of identifying and, and it's, it's centered mostly around theology. Everything we've looked at up to this point is theological. And we call that in, in, in academic terms when we look at different parts of the Bible, we call that the, the indicative. It indicates to us who we are, what our relationship is to Christ, and, and it, it indicates to us who God is and how he's worked in our lives. But now we're in that transition, and that transition brings us to not the theological, but the ethical and practical aspects of it. So, so what you know about Jesus and what you know about what he's done in your life and what you've known about yourself now has practical implications. Okay, therefore, how do we respond? What is, what is the response to this? And the one verse that, that that hinges on is in verse 6. Therefore, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So walk in him. And so there you see that indicative and imperative. As you receive Jesus Christ, so walk in him. There's the theological, there's the practical, there's the indicative, there's the imperative. And so the first part of our sermon is looking at the sum summarizing of the indicative, Paul's final words of encouragement and salutation, and then we move into the imperative, which will be the rest of the book of Colossians. So the first point we want to look at here in verse 5 is Paul's rejoicing in the spiritual maturity of the Colossian church. He says to them in verse 5, For though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now remember, Paul never met this congregation. He never stepped foot there. He never preached there. This was not a church he planted, but he heard a lot about them, and he knew them, and he prayed for them in the spirit. And although he's absent physically and bodily from the congregation, he's with them, one in spirit, through the, his faith and union with Christ. As all believers are part of, of the union of faith, right? We are one with the churches around the world that call out upon the Lord Jesus. We're not distinct, but we're one with them, even if we're not physically present. That's the mystic union of Christ and his church. But what he wants them to know is that he is greatly rejoicing. He is greatly rejoicing because of what God has done in them. He says, I am rejoicing in to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, Paul rejoices over many things, and we're called to rejoice. The rejoicing is when we take great joy and pleasure in something. And when he takes great joy and pleasure is what he sees happening in the church, and that is good order and firmness in their faith. Now, what do those two words mean? Those two words are actually militaristic terms. They're terms that are used in the military. Um, now, Paul uses a lot of imagery and metaphor in his writings, whether he's referring to agriculture or to the military, and we'll see a lot of those metaphors today. But in this particular context, these words were taken out of popular usage describing the Roman military. The word order here, which in Greek is taxis, speaks of a very organized and structured army. 
Now, I, I've been to West Point when I was a kid, and I remember going there and seeing the formation of cadets as they, as they march in perfect order. They turn their rifles in perfect order. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to watch a structured military garrison operate. In the same way, though, Paul is thinking of the Roman legions. The Roman legions were historically the most organized, the most structured, and the most destructive army in the ancient world. They were impenetrable. They were undefeatable. It was, it was, a, it was, it was something that even till today, military strategists look back to the Roman legions and how they worked and operated with such great success in moving forward. One historian says this, if the Roman army was the most powerful war machine in the ancient world and the gears of that machine were the legions, in popular depictions they're envisaged as expertly trained soldiers, uncompromisingly disciplined, forged in the fires of myth and smutch as battle, and this iteration of the legion would come to embody Rome's military prowess wherever it went. This church was organized and structured. You see, they understood their place in this world. They understood that in, in this world, we are at war. The war is not ours to pick, but it's the world who is hostile against the church. Remember Paul says, I'm filling up in my body the afflictions that are lacking in Christ. The world hates Christ and the world hates his people. And so we are constantly at war against the devil, the flesh, and the world. And we must be structured and organized or we're going to get wiped out. The orderliness, the structure, and the discipline must be that a church it understands first and foremost its role under the head, who is Jesus Christ, the head of the church. We get our we get our orders from the Word of God, the Bible. We understand that within the churches there are elders and deacons, and there's order in the church. There's order to worship. I remember some years ago when I first got saved, there were churches that were hyper charismatic that I visited, and you would walk in the door, and it was. It was basically a free-for-all. It was no water, no structure. It was just total chaos. Well, who's the pastor? There is no pastor. We're all pastors. Okay, and well, what, what's, what are we doing now? Well, whatever the Spirit leads, we'll do next. What are we teaching today? Whatever the Spirit leads. You know, it's the same kind of order when we say, well, let the Spirit lead me. Where am I going to read in the Bible? Oh, there I am. I'm going to read there today. You know, there's, there has to be structure and order in our lives and discipline. It means discipline also in forsaking the things that cause us to stumble and turn us away from God. It means disciplining ourselves and not indulging in the flesh. But it means being committed to the things of the Spirit. This was a church that was disciplined and ordered and structured. And so, you know, it's interesting because while this letter is also a warning to the church of Colossae about the future... It is also a letter of encouragement that Paul's greatly rejoicing over their structure, their order, their discipline. There's another point here that's important to point out. It's not just that, but the firmness of their faith. This in the Greek is stereomai. It carries the meaning of a show of force. It carries the meaning of a, of a show of force, of a, a firmness, of a resolve. And clearly Paul has already praised them for their spiritual vitality in verse 4 and verse 5. 
But this firmness indicates that they're established in their faith and they're standing on solid ground and they're not going to back down. There are other places in the New Testament where Paul uses military language to describe how the believer confronts the, the, all the battles that we have in his life. For instance, in Ephesians 6, 13 through 18, we know this well. Listen to what it says. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day Having done all to stand firm, there he is, standing firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith for which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul takes the imagery of a Roman soldier, of a Roman legion. This is the church. And our general, Christ, our king, leads before us. Uh, look with me in 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 2. Because, again, Paul brings this imagery of... of um, of a military force and how we, the church, have a militant Christ. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal and procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved among those who are perishing to one, the fragrance from death to death and to the other, the fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of the word of God, but men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God we speak in Christ. That triumphal procession, Paul is borrowing again the imagery of the Roman Empire. When a Roman, when a Roman legion went to war and they had victory, they would return to Rome and there would be a parade in the street. You know, like when the Yankees and the Mets win a World Series, you get a ticker tape parade in New York City, and everybody comes out and celebrates. When Rome had a military victory and then came back, the emperor and the general who led that legion, those legions to that battle, would have a triumphal procession through uh, right down the main Broadway of Rome. And, 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 and people would throw roses and flowers at the army, and it would bring a fragrance into the air. You could smell the fragrance of victory. And, in, and behind the Roman army, you would see the enemies shackled and, and, and humiliated in public shame, stripped naked as they were paraded through the street as defeated enemies. Christ leads us in triumphal procession. The victory has already been done. And so we stand in Christ. We stand in his triumph. Satan is a defeated foe. He's been stripped of his power. But he's still loose, and until Christ comes, and when I say loose, he's still on this earth influencing and inspiring the wicked deeds of those who are not in Christ. There's still a battle, and that battle is daily, and we have to take up our armor and fight the good fight. But here's the key. In verse 5, he says, I see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. This phrase is repeated over and over and over and is the undergirding theme of Colossians. The success in their faith and stability is grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. He who is the source of all knowledge and wisdom 
strength are found in Christ alone. There is no middle ground. And I think as the Colossian church is facing a future where different ideologies are coming in and false doctrines are coming in, their ability to resist these ideologies and doctrines is going to be that they are grounded in Christ Jesus. It's really simple. If you are not rooted and grounded in faith in Christ, if you're not if you're not disciplined and ordered and structured in your own personal life and in the church, when false ideas and false doctrines come in, you're going to cave. In fact, that's what false doctrine does in a way, it purifies the church. Since I've been a pastor now, since 2005, in these years, and even prior to just being a Christian, I've seen so many people I know who are swept away by every wind and wave of doctrine. A new fad comes in. A guy writes a book, The Shack. And everybody's like, oh yeah, let's go get the book, The Shack. And then there's Rob Bell who comes out with his ideas. Oh, let's go follow Rob Bell. You know, and it was Rick Warren, the purpose-driven life. Let's go follow Rick Warren. They're not grounded. They're not in Christ. They're not disciplined. They're not structured. And so when the new doctrine, the new ideology, and by the way, this isn't just, just within the church. It's in, from without. I mean, when you think of uh, how many churches have embraced and bought into and teach and preach and propagate critical race theory from the pulpits today, because they're not organized and structured and standing firm in Christ. So what the world says is good, we're going to go along with it. The world says something, they go along. Wait and watch in the days and months to come how many churches in the years to come are going to say embrace homosexual marriage. Watch. Watch how many churches embrace and say, ah, abortion, what's the big deal? Wait till you see how many churches say transgenderism, it's okay, we have to show the love of Christ. You wait and see, because they're not structured, they're not organized, they're not disciplined, they're not firmly rooted in Christ. And the churches will cave. We'll become less popular, but that's okay. The church was never called to be popular. Never was the church called to be popular. Never was the church called to embrace all that the world does. Never was the church called to, to follow the new trend. We are called to be faithful to the word of God. And I'm going to tell you, historically, whenever the church is faithful to God, there's going to be resistance from the world. The more faithful the church is to the word of God, the more resistance and hostility there will be from the world. It doesn't matter what the world does. We're not here to please the world. We're here to please Jesus Christ. Secondly, let's go to our second point. Now we go to the hinge verse. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, verse 6. Now we are swinging the door, the hinge of the door swing. We're going from the indicative to the imperative. Paul reminds them of a past event that took place just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. This is a powerfully packed statement. And it begs to ask the question, what does it mean to receive Jesus Christ? There's some conflict and controversy of when we evangelize about telling people to receive or accept Christ. But this text is telling us exactly that, that the Colossians at a moment have received Jesus Christ. And the Greek phrase there, the Greek word can be translated as to receive or to accept. 
Now, this word is used most, most of the time through the New Testament in terms of receiving a tradition. Like, like Paul says, I receive from the Lord what I give to you on 1 Corinthians 11 regarding the Lord's Supper. It's usually regard to a tradition, to a teaching, or to a doctrine. But here the word is used specifically about the person of Jesus Christ. And I think what we have to see here is that this is speaking of the conversion of the Colossians. Christ is the subject here. They are in Christ. All of this is about the incorporation of Jesus Christ into the life of the believer. The verb is in the past tense. It's already taken place. And so what it means is not only that we receive the teaching about Christ, but receive him. In other words, we put our trust and faith in him as Savior, but we commit ourselves to him completely as Lord. That's the emphasis here. Christ Jesus, the Lord. The article, the, is there to emphasize what Paul wants to describe. The Lord is, is a summarization. It's an it's a easy way to say everything that Paul said in verse 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace therefore by the blood of his cross. You could summarize all of that by saying, The Lord. Christ Jesus, the Lord. It means that becoming a Christian is not just about being saved from hell, but becoming a Christian is about surrendering your life and committing your life fully to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to receive the Lord. Receiving the Lord means a full commitment to a lifestyle that submits to Jesus Christ. He's not just our all-sufficient Savior, but he is our supreme Lord. Now again, words borrowed from the Roman mind, the Roman Empire. The term Lord in Greek is kyrios. Kyrios is the same word that was used to describe the emperor of Rome. When you refer to the emperor of Rome, Caesar, you called him Lord. And the term meant that this individual had absolute power and authority. We're a democracy. We're used to electing our own leaders. We're used to having different points of view in politics. But in Rome, there was no different point of view. There was only one person who was the, the lawmaker, who was the judge, and who was the final determiner of what Rome did, and that was the emperor. And if you didn't like it, you were killed. It was that simple. It was not... A democracy, it was not an oligarchy, it was an autocracy, it was a it was a complete dictatorship. And it worked, it worked for a long time. The Roman Empire ruled the world longer than any empire or nation in history. But Paul wants the church to understand that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one with supreme authority. He is the one with Supreme rulership. He is the one who has absolute right to dictate and tell us what, how to live our lives. 
He is the sovereign one who, as he says in Matthew 28, all power in heaven and authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. It's the confession of the ancient church. Right? Romans 10, 9, 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. This is the confession of the ancient church. In 2 Corinthians 4, 5, what did Paul say? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Philippians 2, 9 and 11. For, for God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Confessing Jesus Christ as Lord is not just a verbal confession, it's a way of life. When you were in the ancient Roman Empire and you said Caesar is Lord, it was a way of confessing absolute allegiance to Caesar. And if you failed in your absolute allegiance to Caesar and convicted of treason, you were killed, you were executed. Does Jesus expect any less loyalty from us? Do you think that it's in vain that the scripture says that Jesus is the Lord? Receiving the Lord doesn't mean that, that you just, you know, welcome him into your life and, you know, live your life the way you want. Receiving the Lord means receiving him as the sovereign ruler over your mind, your will, and your heart. It means I am subject to him. It means I am not free to do what I want. Christ demands absolute loyalty and allegiance. That's the Christian life. The word kyrios is also used, very symbolic and significant, because it is the word that is used over and over again in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for Yahweh. You know when you read your English Bibles in the Old Testament and you see the references in the Psalms to the Lord, and it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the transliteration of Yahweh, or better known as the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, because the vowels were not included. We're guessing how to pronounce the name of God. You see, the Jewish people were so took so seriously and literally the commandment, thou shalt not utter the name of the Lord in vain, that they dared not even write the name of God with the vowels. I had a Jewish professor when I was in college and he would write G-D. He would not put the O because it was seen as using the Lord's name in vain. Well, that very word in the Old Testament in the Greek translation is always uses the Greek word kurios. So it's not just confessing that Christ has absolute authority in our lives, but it's claiming that he's God. Everything that was encapsulated that we just read in chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. So the assumption here is that the Colossians had received Jesus as Lord. They've entered into this life. They're walking this life already. Because of that indicative, now is the imperative, so walk in him. It's in the perfect tense. It means it's begun, it started, continue doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing, continue in him is another translation. In other words, don't stop doing what you're doing. Keep it up. You're doing good. 
Don't give up. And it carries the same meaning of verse 10, chapter 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Work in a manner worthy of this calling. To live a life pleasing to God. You see, ultimately, when we look at the New Testament, Jesus is not just our Lord and Savior, but he is our ultimate example. He's our ultimate role model. To walk in him means that we are not only living the life of in Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory, but that manifests itself in being imitators of God, Ephesians 5.1. We're called to imitate Christ. We're called, and the word imitate means to mimic. To be imitators of God means to, we're to live like Jesus did. And like, for instance, in Colossians 3.13, look at what Paul says in his letters to Colossians. If any one of you has a complaint against another, Forgive each other as the Lord has what? Forgiven you. So the call to forgive one another, if if someone's complaining about you, is not because you should do it because it's the right thing to do. Do it because Christ has forgiven you. Christ has set the example. Christ has set the standards. That's what it means to walk in Christ. Or when Peter, writing to the church, uh, as they're being persecuted, suffering unjustly, right? They're, they're, They're being falsely accused and unjustly suffering and what does he say to them in 1 Peter 2.21? For this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's what it means to live in Christ. It means that the life of Jesus Christ flows through us. We don't always reflect that, do we? We don't always reflect that. But you see, that's where we must realize that our Walking in him cannot be carried out in our own strength, but it must be carried out through Christ Jesus. Have you received the Lord today? Maybe you acknowledge intellectually that Jesus Christ is Lord. Maybe you even verbally said Jesus Christ is Lord, but do you, have you truly received him? Have you committed your life to him? Thirdly, what this life looks like. Well, the rest of the book of Colossians will spell out for us in great detail what this looks like. But for the purpose of our sermon today, verse 7 tells us what walking in him looks like. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What we have here is a list of four characteristics of what life in Christ looks like. Four characteristics, and those four characteristics are expressed each with a participle. The first participle is rooted. We're to be rooted. And this appears again in the perfect tense like the like like receiving the Lord. And it it follows on receiving and it demonstrates that this is something originating in the past and continues. The word rooted has also the meaning of being established. It means there was a sound theological foundation as a result. It's like a plant with good, solid roots. Remember in the parable of the sower, Jesus speaks about sowing the seeds on different kinds of soils. There was some soil where it was shallow and took root, but because it was shallow, the plant died. And and there was other soil that was rocky. And it was was only the soil that was fertile and, and good and the roots went deep where that plant grew and bore fruit. That's the person who's truly converted. 
The person who's truly converted has deep roots that are grounded in the Lord and bears fruit as evidence. In Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8, listen to this. Blessed is the man who trusts the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water. It sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when he comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. This is to be rooted in Christ, is to be rooted in the firm foundation of his word. Again, this life in Christ means that apart from him, you could do nothing. John gives us a similar illustration and metaphor in John 15, 4, 5. Uh, the Lord tells us, Abide in me and I in you, and as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me you could do nothing. Unless we're rooted in Christ Jesus and, and, are, and are committed into this reception of him, we're not going to bear any fruit. But when we're in him, when we're rooted and grounded in truth, there will be fruit in our lives. The second participle is built up. Paul now moves from the perfect tense to the present tense. This is something that is happening now and will continue in the future. But now Paul moves from the agricultural metaphor to the engineering metaphor. And the word built up here speaks of a building process, of constructing a building. And there's two applications to this. And one is it's obviously speaking of the church. Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 tells us that we're all being built together into a dwelling place for the God by the Spirit. But it's also speaking of our lives as individuals. Christ is building us up. If you have nothing to be encouraged about today, be encouraged this, Christ is building you up. It may seem at times where we're not being built up. It may be seem like times that, that, that nothing's happening. We're going backwards. It may seem at times that we actually tear down the bricks. But be assured, God is building you up. It also means that we're still under construction and the project is incomplete. We went to look at the building there in White Plains a few times already. And each time we looked at it, it's different stages of production. It's still not complete. It's when the product is finished that you say, ah, now I see what it looks like. The truth is all of us are under construction. God has begun a good work, but he's faithful to complete it. The third participle is strengthened in the faith. Does this mean that our faith is strengthened or that we are strengthened by our faith? I think we're trying to, you know, slice and dice words here. They're not mutually exclusive. The truth is our faith can waver. There are times when my faith is strong enough to move a mountain. And there are times my faith is so weak I'm on the verge of, of, of apostatizing. It, it, it fluctuates our faith. And there are times that, that we can be almost uh, bipolar, spiritually speaking. I know, um, look at Elijah. One moment he's on Mount Carmel, slaying the prophets of Baal. Who has greater faith than him at that moment? As soon as he hears that Jezebel's out to get him, what does he do? He rides, runs away, hides in a cave and says, Oh God, take my life, I've had enough. I just want to die. 
the faith to move a mountain, and then all of a sudden, he totally lost all that faith he had, and he's running and hiding. That's all of us. Our faith can be strong, and it can be weak. But again, here, all three of these participles have one thing in common, whether it's the rooting, or the strengthening, or the building. They're all in the passive voice. You know what that means? That means it is God who's doing the rooting. It is God who's doing the building. It is God who's doing the strengthening. It means that in and of ourselves, we can do nothing. It means that we are not responsible for rooting and building and strengthening. It is the work of God. And we can rejoice in that, can't we? If you know all three of those things, then it leads to the fourth participle, which is in the active voice, which means it is something we're responsible for. And that is to abound in thanksgiving. Hallelujah. What a way to begin this week for thanksgiving. If you know you're in Christ and you know that God is building you and rooting you and strengthening you, then that leads to someone who's born again to overflow with thanksgiving, to abound with thanksgiving to God. Thankfulness and gratitude are the mark of someone who is rooted and grounded and built up and strengthened by God. If you're not in Christ, you will be a thankless wretch. You will be a miserable person who will do nothing but complain all the time. If you are in Christ, you will overflow with gratitude because you will see the bigger picture. That Christ died for my sins. And no matter how bad things are, the light of the gospel shines into that darkness and gives me hope and gives me life. And I am blessed and I am thankful. Notice what Paul says later in Colossians 3, 16, 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 4.2, Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. If you're not thankful today, there's nothing I could do to help you. Only God can help you. Let me conclude. As we move into the imperative now, thankfulness is something we must do. We are commanded to do, and we can do it because of the work God has done in us. I want to give you three reasons to be thankful today, following up on those three, three participles. You are rooted in Christ. Listen to Sam Storms. No matter how tenuous or free-floating life sometimes seems, I have been rooted in Jesus Christ. God has graciously seeded my soul into the soil of Christ's unchanging and unconquerable grace. My life is rooted in him. My hope is grounded in his goodness. This is my identity. This is my security. This is my strength when I feel like I'm wandering aimlessly and hopelessly through one disappointment after another. Whatever I may encounter, whether good or bad of this day, I may be certain I have been rooted in Christ. We could be thankful for that. Secondly, you are being built up in Christ. As I said, we may not see the progress. We may not see the major developments. We may feel we're regressing 
Sometimes we may feel like we're not moving at all, but be assured, Jesus Christ is building us up. He's building his church. He's building you. He's building me. And by grace, he will finish the project. He will complete the good work. Do not be discouraged. Be encouraged. And be thankful. And thirdly, God is strengthening us. I don't always feel strong. This week, I felt terribly weak spiritually. Terribly weak. But we're reminded of something. And in our weakness, God is made strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10 says this. When Paul asked the thorn be removed from him, he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your inspired word. Thank you for rooting us. Thank you for building us. Thank you for strengthening us. Thank you for dwelling in us. Thank you for empowering us. Thank you for opening our eyes and giving us faith to believe. Thank you for bearing our sins on the cross. Thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for sparing us from eternal punishment. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Thank you, God, for your fellowship, for your love, for your patience for your endurance, for your mercies, which are new every morning. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've provided for us. We thank you for the good times, and we thank you for the bad. We thank you for the trials, and we thank you for the victories. We thank you for the failures and the successes. We thank you for, for our hopes, and we thank you for our despair, because in all things, O oh Lord, you are working them together for good. Oh God, what could we say else but thank you, Jesus? We love you, Lord. We ask you for mercy and forgiveness. And pray, oh Lord, as we celebrate with our families this week, oh Lord, the holiday of Thanksgiving, that our hearts would truly, truly be thankful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand as we sing once again.